Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the TV pilot's license flight number 18 with service to Imperial Beach, California. We ask that you please fasten your headphones at this time, secure your podcasting device, and remember that if you find yourself levitating at any point in our flight, please make sure to notify a flight attendant before self-diagnosing yourself with brain cancer. Welcome to the TV pilot's license. <laughs> My name is Jeff Kerbis, joined by Rich Inman and Max Singer. How are you boys doing? today california <laughs> here we come yeah 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 we're do, doing do, 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 <laughs> we're doing the oc do, do, part do, do, two do, do, do. <laughs> <laughs> well welcome everyone to the tv pilots license this week we are doing a little known i don't want to call it a hit we're doing a little known show called john from cincinnati it's um, a hit baby it from 2007 rich you brought us this show why (laughs) (laughs) okay so for me i have a very like nice personal connection with the show because uh i knew very very few if almost no one outside my immediate family that actually watched the show um i think i forced it on you guys like in college or something like that or i wouldn't shut up about it um because I, I do truly like I love this fucking show. And I think one of the biggest travesties is that it didn't get more um, seasons. I don't think it got like nearly enough appreciation for what it is. And I, I mean, for anyone listening at home who hasn't watched the show for, I would say this probably needs the most context out of any show that we've ever done. Like you can't just kind of guess this. You can't figure it out from like cultural context or references like no nothing references this show Um, i i can speak to that because i have a confession to make (laughs) oh no so this this show jonathan cincinnati came out about 15 years ago i've had the pleasure of knowing rich for about 13 years so (laughs) john from cincinnati has existed for the entirety of mine and rich's friendship uh these are facts and Rich has, in fact, talked about this show a lot in those 13 years of our friendship. And he always described to me as like, oh, there's this show that I love from HBO. It didn't have a long run. It's called John from Cincinnati. And it's about this guy. And he might be Jesus. And he shows up <laughs> in a surfing town. But he's not Jesus. He's John from Cincinnati. <laughs> and if you know Rich, he used those like same tones while talking about this show pretty often. Yeah, I... I... And I can picture well, this conversation perfectly. Yeah, he, I, he speaks in riddles, and you're going to love it. I, for about 13 years, have thought that this was a cerebral 30-minute comedy. Oh, really? <laughs> I, because, I have been doing you look, a disservice. I, I, I know Rich. I know Rich's style of humor. I know the things that him and I bond over and joke about, like what made us such good friends. And I have thought that this was a sitcom for the entirety of the time that I have known about no, it. No, sir. And then about a day before I sat down to watch it, a friend of mine reached out and was like, oh, it's great that you're doing this show. I just bought David Milch's memoir. And I realized I had no idea what I was about to sit down and watch <laughs> based on that man's name. I really would have loved if you just had sat down fully prepared for 30 minutes all jokes 
and then come out the other side almost like a war veteran. I <laughs> like... did. I don't I don't know what I thought I was getting into, but it was not this. I thought I was gonna be watching some goofy comedy about surfing Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for those who don't know what they're coming into as far as this podcast, Max, do you mind telling the folks a little bit about what we're all about? Absolutely. So here at TV Pilots License, we break down and analyze the pilot episodes of some of TV's most famous, and in some cases, infamous shows. (laughs) Uh, We figure out how these shows came to be and got greenlit. Uh, If they were effective pilots and making us want to watch more, if they could be made today. Uh, We've got a whole bank of episodes now wherever you get your podcasts, so go ahead, stream what shows you may know and love, or find something new you've never seen before. And if it's your first time flying with us, Welcome aboard. All right, Rich, what is your question of the week? Yeah, um, okay, so since neither of you guys had any idea what the show is basically going into it, and because I forced you to do this for the holidays, and you'll for everyone listening at home, you'll see why, um, because there's a reason that we did this around Christmas. This is our Christmas episode. They were going to have three Jews talking about Christmas <laughs> uh, through the lens of an HBO surf noir show. Um, I would love to know how this, like what your expectations were going into this and how this show subverted them and, uh, and, and just like your, your own experience of trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the show. That is the headiest question of the week we've ever <laughs> Wow. Had. I, I don't even know where to start. No, the headiest one was how does the ship work? <laughs> so I'll, I'll give a little peek behind the curtain. When it comes to uh, doing this podcast and the episodes that we choose to do, I like to do a little bit of research beforehand. Um, And this time, I (laughs) chose to just do a little bit of research on the cast that was in the show. Um, And upon seeing whom was in the cast, I had a very similar thought process as Max. I was like, oh, hell yeah. This is going to be witty jokes all over the place. Um, Am I going to get some kick-ass surfing? Hell yeah. Love that. Uh, Bring me back to the early 2000s when surfing and skateboarding were the sports of our youth. Um, And then I got slapped in the face by, or basically assaulted by this show. And it's choice of either doing surf talk or talking in biblical speak. There is no in-between. There is no normal person talking on this show. And normally my wife, Alex, likes to watch these shows with me. And she was like sort of disappointed she didn't get to watch this one with me. And I literally told her, I don't know if you should be disappointed. I think you would have been angry and yelling at the TV with me. <laughs> Very similar to as if I was watching a sporting event. Um, so, yeah, that, that's as much as I'll give. Yeah, my process is a little different than Jeff's. I like to just go in, take in the show, and then I get all my background info after because I try not to be like, unless I like know big facts about it already, I try not to like give myself too much of like a preconceived notation. Um, I was fascinated to watch this. I'm actually very excited to talk about this show for uh, so many reasons, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's really interesting to get into an episode of a show that has such a pedigreed background a person who has done so much leading up to a show has done so much after a show and there's this thing 
in the middle that just didn't quite click because I mean we're gonna get into it but like this is a, a show from like a veteran cast a veteran creator and just something misfired and I'm really curious to see what we think that is collectively yeah no I I genuinely like although we'll talk about the show I am so curious about hearing everyone's perspective on the different things that happened in this 53 minutes of television that we watched here um here's what i Rich, think about this show uh, i i do believe that this had the and max i'm sure you're going to go into this the extremely unfortunate timing of this show kind of doomed it from the start and I really do believe that with the enigmatic nature of the show and how many different riddles and like how captivated you are and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, I really equate this to like a twin peaks type situation for me mm-hmm. where it's just like, I, I'm going to sit down and try to figure out what the hell is happening. And I think this is too, this is too like, uh, ethereal and weird and like i i think it was just like too weird to take place immediately following arguably the most like popular hbo show of the uh, of like from its from its inception to the day john from cincinnati comes out for it to like immediately follow that it was kind of doomed from the start i'm uh but I'm, i'm super curious max to to see like or to hear more about like the origins of the show and you know we can go into like how how doomed it was really by the way whenever rich refers uh cryptically to the most famous hbo show of all time we're referring to arliss yes yes yes, 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 yes. <laughs> i i thought you were re- referring to the minx r.i.p uh but you know <laughs> um, it, it's it's just minx jeff drop drop the the it's cleaner nope 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 the minx we have yeah, to like, refer to it like the Ohio State University. Yeah, Bridget, I was just about to say that. <laughs> um, well, for those who are curious, let's talk a little bit about a synopsis of the show. In Imperial Beach, California, the dysfunctional Yost family intersects with two new arrivals to the community, a dim but wealthy surfing, surfing enthusiast and a man spurned by the Yost years ago. That's it. Max... Let's uh, talk a little bit about how this show was made. Totally. So today we are going to be talking about John from Cincinnati's pilot episode, His Visit, Day One, which debuted on June 10th, 2007. Uh, This show is a two-hander from the minds of David Milch and Kem Numb. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Numb first because there's not quite as much there, but Numb is a surf noir author which would also make badass knuckle tattoos um (laughs) and num is probably best known for his 1984 debut novel tapping the source which was a finalist for the national book award but more importantly was the basis for the 1991 film point break yeah Uh, and num uh later goes on to become a tv writer he works in the writer's room for the third and final season of deadwood which uh is another david milch show now david milch is a massive name in television from the 1980s through today uh but he wasn't always a tv writer uh he actually started off as an english and literature professor at yale his alma mater 
uh, during his undergrad time at Yale. He was actually fraternity brothers in Phi Beta Kappa with uh, future president George W. Bush and went on to receive his master's in uh, fine arts from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Uh, so while he's working as a literature professor at Yale, Milch writes a spec script for the TV show Hill Street Blues. And it ends up making its way to people at Hill Street, and he gets brought on as a story editor. Milch's spec script ends up becoming an actual episode of the show. It is the premiere of season three. And that episode is called Trial by Theory, and actually goes on to win Milch a primetime Emmy Damn. for outstanding writing for wow. a drama series. Whoa. So his, his spec script ends up netting him an Emmy Award. Uh, he spends five years at Hill Street Blues, where he ends up becoming an executive story editor and eventually an executive producer on the series. Uh, Post-Hill Street, he goes on to co-create NYPD Blue, where he's their executive producer for the show's first seven seasons. Uh, he spends a lot of time at CBS in the 90s doing uh, cop dramas for them. Uh, he creates two lesser-known shows for CBS called Brooklyn South and Big Apple. But Oops. then in 2004... He creates a show over at HBO called Deadwood, which he also writes the majority of its entire three-season run. Uh, Deadwood, if you're not familiar, revolutionizes TV writing as we know it in the early 2000s. It is one of the first shows that I guess has that sort of like uh, not theatrical, not television style of dialogue. It, it just it's written as if people in the 1870s in the Badlands of South Dakota talk. It's incredibly crass. It's incredibly overlapping. And it's unceremoniously canceled by HBO after three seasons, but its legacy lives on. It's considered to be one of the best TV shows of all time. Uh, won a ton of Emmy Awards. It was nominated for more in its run. But now, Milch basically has a blank check to do whatever he wants at HBO. And that takes us to John from Cincinnati. Let's see what yep. he does with that yep. blank check. That, that, uh... <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting because when asked in interviews what John from Cincinnati is about, Milch has responded, it is about itself. <laughs> and has also more or less acknowledged that he doesn't think you could pinpoint the show as being about any one thing. Um, it draws on Kem Num's uh, surf noir genre as sort of a tone and world for it. It deals a lot with Milch's own issues with substance abuse and how that affects him and the people around him. Uh, he's kind of said it's about a family of surfers who have become more and more disassociated from themselves and from good surfing. They were all champions and they are in one way or another alienated and loaded. Um, he's also described as being post 9-11 America. Basically, uh, this response from the great beyond as to where we are headed as a humanity. Hmm. So uh, between that and him being friends with George W. Bush, there's a lot of 9 11 ties to this show. Wait, uh, being so, friends with George W. Bush? Well, they were boy. fraternity brothers. I, I'm Listen. seeing a little bit of a trend of post 9 11 America takes place only in California, according to our podcast with the OC and then John from Cincinnati. Dave, Dave, Dave it's it's George Collin. I'm calling from the White House. <laughs> I just watched that new show. You, that new, I just watched the new pilot you just put up, John from Cincinnati. And I gotta say, you guys called, <laughs> you have exactly my view on 
people coming across the border from Mexico that I was expecting from a gale man. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and now we got to talk about the thing that Rich has alluded to, which is the timing of this show. Milch, obviously, again, blank check, coming off Deadwood, could do what he wants. This pilot gets slotted to premiere immediately following the series finale of The Sopranos. One, massive shoes to fill, but two... It's been 15 years, so I'm just going to say it. If you have not seen the finale of The Sopranos, there is a sudden blackout to end the show where no sound occurs, a long beat, and then the credits roll. When that episode premiered, millions of Americans called their cable companies thinking that something was wrong with their cable packages, (laughs) satellite dishes, so on and so forth. It was a miracle. And so you basically have this entire audience that you're expecting to lead into your show who all think that their cable box is broken and now you have to premiere your show. It is it is the most daunting time slot that you could have, but also the worst circumstances to lead directly into your show. So I was going to save this for the legacy portion, but um, if anyone's curious, what percentage of audience dropped off between the 11.9 million people that watched the series finale of The Sopranos and the premiere of John from Cincinnati? What if I told you only 28% of that audience stayed back? Oh my and that's God. insane to me because it's like Deadwood runs from 04 to 06 and it's it's getting nominated for the same thing as Sopranos. It's in that same time slot. It's like... it people watch these shows together for a couple of years yeah. and it's like it's probably the same you know prestige tv lovers it's the same adult audience and you have milch's new show so i i, I don't understand where that like disconnect happened how like from i don't know if it's a marketing thing i don't know if there was just lack of interest i have a theory I don't, yeah go ahead um you know uh if you're familiar with how they film things like Marvel movies right now, you know that the cast is basically in the dark about what happens because they don't want things to influence how they react in real time to scenes. They don't want the entire thing is basically, I want to protect any spoilers from happening period, which is ridiculous Uh because like, even if there are spoilers and stuff like that, you know, people are, uh, people are still going to go watch the movie, but with a spoiler, like, you know, protective uh, thing in mind, my guess is that very few people outside of the cast and production crew knew how The Sopranos was going to end. And I think what ended up happening is that the programmers for this did not know that there was just going to be a blackout at the end of The Sopranos to keep, to main, to basically, like, withhold information from leaking online and stuff like that so what i think happened is that they couldn't predict they couldn't plan for this i think they were coming in hard with john from cincinnati right after this with for a purpose because they wanted people to cross over come see the new david milch thing it's like hey do you guys you guys remember deadwood right you love deadwood well, here's the new, here's the new Deadwood, and uh, and I really, I really do think that they that they wanted this to succeed really well. But I think very few people at HBO or people who were doing the programming actually knew how this was going to end. I I know we're not. This is not. This episode is not about The Sopranos. But I can't help but think: Could you imagine if Twitter existed when The <laughs> Sopranos finale happened 
and we would just have... I mean, we could make it about the Sopranos. Yeah, no, I'm we, holding this, we could uh, just this have, oral history written by Michael Imperioli and Steve We would Sharippa just have, right like, uh, Elon Musk would just be complaining and, like, doing cryptic memes. Uh, everyone would just be saying, I don't know what the hashtag would be. Would it be Blackout? Would it be Sopranos? Who knows? Maybe we'll talk about that when we finally do Max's dream episode of The Sopranos. Uh, <laughs> but with all of that background... You guys want to just jump into... Let's do it. Let's jump into that wave. Let's hang ten, yeah. baby. <laughs> All of us are obviously surfers. Um, so we get an intro into the show with Lord Johnny Appleseed. Um, I thought this intro to the episode was actually super enlightening because on face value, you would assume that this show is entirely about surfing, right? Uh, they show us a lot of clips of surfing, Imperial Beach as a whole. But as the intro goes further in, we start to get introduced to different elements, like migration issues, um, drugs as a whole, like all to this folk song in the background of sorts. Yeah, it's it's interesting that a show like this would just launch immediately into its opening credits. I feel like maybe we're just a little more accustomed to having these cold opens yeah. or having a little bit of time to like set up almost a prologue for your pilot. But this just throws you into the credits. Like, I mean, in a way it sort of washes over you. You get to like let that sink in. You get some Joe Strummer vocals mm -hmm. like coming into picture here. But it is interesting that you start this episode off before you actually meet any characters. Yeah, it, it definitely, it was an interesting way to open the episode. Um, I, I love the song choice, first of all. I think that's a great song for this, like now knowing what the, I say knowing with the gigantic air quotes, because I think no one knows what this is about. It's sort of like the meaning of life. We all ponder and we all uh, say to each other what we think it is, but we don't really know. But well, instant, I mean, overall, yeah. the music for this show rips. I, I yeah, really think, for sure, hundred yeah. percent, and and it even get it somehow even gets better like over this over like the course of the season, but like because you only get like two or three songs throughout this entire like hour long episode, but mm -hmm. you it really becomes like part of the vibe. Like you, it is a it, it seems like the the music choices are very thoughtful. It, it feels very like unique and and really part of the landscape and not necessarily like you know, we're going to throw a popular song in here to, to like keep people's attention or something like that. It is, I don't know. I think they just do a really good job of it. I'm, I, my mission for the rest of this episode is to make sure people actually watch all 10 episodes of the show. Oh no, we got a oh, missionary. No. Oh no. <laughs> in evangelist, actually, it it, would this, you say that's show, your though. position, Rich? Or? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the missionary position. Bye everyone, bye. <laughs> this show is actually another first for HBO though. This has never been done by HBO before. After the opening credits, we get a commercial break and we see a Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercial. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Max, I am so glad you said that because Instantly when I saw the Lincoln roll up to the beach, I was disappointed when Luke Perry stepped out and not Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, Speaking you, you in, see a man surfing on the water in the cool blue waves. You let's, know let's just, that this precedes the Lincoln commercials by like eight or nine No, no, years, no, right? no, no. Shut up! <laughs> Matthew McConaughey has always been the Lincoln spokesperson, always, since, since, since the beginning of time. Since the beginning. Yeah. 
Since it um, was founded by Abraham Lincoln. But, like, also, I would have loved, like, this is me just, like, retconning this entire show, but Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> if you don't know and you have never seen one of these Lincoln commercials, he just speaks in riddles and rhymes. He does. Him and John Monad speaking in riddles to each other after he steps out of a car would have been just, like, wonderful for me. We wouldn't and have I really even gotten ten full episodes if they did that. <laughs> Yeah, no, we Matthew, McConaughey, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey could have done John from Cincinnati, uh, but specifically the character of John Monad, not even the actor Austin Nichols could not have done Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's the square is a rectangle, but not all rectangles are squares, I see. Um, but after we see uh, Link, who is played by Luke Perry, uh, roll up. Obviously, a well-to-do guy watching um, Michios plays by Bruce Greenwood surfing. And, like, that's one of the things I will... Um, one of the first things that I want to give the show really big credit on is filming surfing is really, really difficult. Filming surfing well is extremely difficult because it's a very intricate sport. There's a lot of detail that's associated with it. And from the beginning of this scene, they do such of the show, they do such a great job of filming this man who was seen as one of the top surfers of all time. And we soon learn he's out of the game. He doesn't even like surfing in public anymore. You can instantly tell the credibility of like Mitch Yost is this legend and Mitch needs to get back into it as a mm -hmm. whole. He's got to get back in the game. Yeah, he's got to get back in the game, as John uh, Monad tells us. Um, but anything else that you guys got from this opening scene of just seeing the Mitch being a surfer, we're introduced to this mysterious figure of John, and we instantly know that Link is sort of a dickhead. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of dudes in Southern California who just kind of come up over your shoulder and say the end is near. So, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I got, I had that happen three times while I was getting coffee this morning. That's not that crazy. Yeah. And the other thing that we should probably mention is when Mitch is just like getting cleaned up from surfing and all this, we, he has this, what he deems a hallucination, right? Uh, we get our first instance of Mitch hovering what, a few inches off the ground? Um, which I would say is strange, for sure. I would agree with but, that. But if you were to... it's uh, It actually reminded me, I don't know if you guys saw... Um, I forget the name of the movie, but it was a Disney movie where it was like Superhero High or something like that. And they had the people who had the underwhelming superpowers. And like, just telling... Are you some, talking about Sky High? Yes, I'm talking about Sky High. Um <laughs> In Sky High, they had people who had underwhelming superpowers, and I could very easily see Mitch be like, yeah, I can levitate like three inches off of the ground. That's it. That's wow. my superpower. I mean, yeah. Th so here's the thing, too. Like, obviously, this is going to become... It, it, he notices it immediately. Uh, it's already, like, an extremely weird thing for to for this to be happening. Like, But also, no one else is around to see it. And this is where I think you have... I think there were actually, it was kind of a disservice to put the credits before this as like a cold open. Yeah. You already true. have a lot of exposition with Luke Perry's characters talking about like, you know, how he's trying to sign Sean, even against like Mitch's wishes and everything. Sean is the, the grandson who's a surfing prodigy. Um, and you start to get a feeling that like, you know, John literally came out 
from nowhere. He is going to be a... You, you can see immediately that having John's presence is already going to shape this family in an extremely bizarre way. And you get his first miracle like a minute into the show. Like it is, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a great way to start it off. I don't know why they didn't just put the credits immediately following that. The one issue I have this opening scene though, is while you have characters talking about Mitch to make it clear that like Mitch is our main guy here. Mm -hmm. We don't, I, 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 you don't need to over explain things, but like, you don't really get any explanation as to like who we're seeing. And then we also spend a lot of time with Luke Perry, who we don't see really again until the end of the episode. Uh, yeah. And even then it's only on like the other side of a phone call jumping ahead a little bit there. And so it's just interesting that you spend so much of your opening beats with a character who, at least for the sake of the pilot, I don't know what is yeah, like forward. I, you spend so much time with link to then not, get really anything else from him here it's yeah, like a marketing like, choice i very much was like oh cool like luke perry is going to be in a lot of this show mm -hmm. and then he wasn't and i was sort of like why um we get introduced to the rest of the yost family though sort of in like an interesting way like while mitch is out surfing uh we see that sean yost the uh, grandson of uh the Yost family, right, is uh, being watched by his grandmother, Sissy, um, which is, what a name. Love that name. Mm -hmm. um, and also while Sissy is watching, there's another woman watching who we have no idea who she is, right? Um, at this point in time of the show, uh, we learn that she's Deborah. Uh, she works definitely hand-in-hand -hand with Link. Um, but we're starting to get, like, a very vague idea of who our main characters are within this episode or who this episode is going to revolve around as a whole um but from here i believe we go to the motel for the first time am i we meet butchie yeah we meet butchie um and it's definitely Butchie's character is one that I'm, like, very curious about because he seems like he's supposed to be a center of comedy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are so many dark notes that, like, are part of this character that had me, like, ah, like, I don't know how to mm -hmm. feel about Butchie as a whole. <laughs> Rich, I'd love to hear, what are your thoughts about, like, our introduction to Butchie in the broken-down Volkswagen as a whole? So, it, like, a little bit earlier, you get... Luke Perry's character, um, Link, talking about how he's not going to do, he's not going to let happen to Mitch. I'm sorry, what happened to Sean, the young, uh, the young surfing prodigy? Uh, what happens to Butchie? And you know, Butchie, you immediately get as a, I mean, he's squatting in a motel in Imperial Beach, already a horrifying situation that he's in. You see him actively, like you know, slamming doors and like throwing shit around the apartment. He is trying to tie off to, he's like very clearly a heroin addict. He references later in the episode that he's like dope sick and stuff like that. Um, he is, you know, it, despite him being like seemingly like an irretrievable person, he's going to have the ability to reconnect with his son who also gives him shit, which is, you know, yeah. probably a little bit too much for an actual 13 year old to handle, but um, 
you see him basically like at his lowest while still trying to be a relatively good dad and you know it's really disheartening it's really sad i it, it is not a it is a difficult character to play honestly um because it's yeah. someone who quote unquote revolutionized surfing you get you get that from several different characters of like you know butch uh butchie's technique as a surfer became like it, it, it just changed the sport as itself i i don't know what that means and I guess it's in the same way that like Tony Hawk revolutionized skateboarding. I don't, I, but even I don't know what that means. But Butchie's being given lifelines too. They mm-hmm. even explain um, the the character Meyer Dickstein, who we meet, who's one of the managers at the motel, played by uh, the great character actor Willie Garson, uh, rest in peace. Uh, who he's basically giving Butchie this like squatter's pass because he's like such a surfing enthusiast, mm-hmm. and it's like. Butchie has people in his camp who maybe don't know quite how to help him, but want to do what they can, even just making sure he has a roof over his head. So, I mean, this is a character who is at his lowest, but like there are people who want to make him redeemable, who want to support him. So you, you know that there's some, there has to be something there within him even if we're not seeing it yet in this pilot yeah we also were introduced to louise uh louise guzman uh by this point in time and like i will say that the hero of greendale college community college (laughs) the the chemistry between willie garson and louise guzman in the show is actually a real bright spot for the show as a whole um and we also the other thing we're introduced to is like hey, this motel is under new ownership uh, by this mysterious figure. We have no idea who they are, but we know that they are coming. Um, And the motel has to be gotten ready. And that's one of... Butchie, while they're trying to take care of him, he's also a nuisance in this situation. He's not supposed to be there. Like, it's supposed to be completely, you know, evacuated as a whole. Um, And I... I did the scene between Butchie and Sean of Sean, like not seeing his dad for six months. That was like one of the, like the conversation there. It is such a difficult character to play, as you said, uh, Rich, of like, but Brian Van Holt does such a good job as like showing that struggle of the dad that wants to be there, but also has so much going on in his life that he brought upon himself. I'm being very honest, but addiction is addiction. It is a disease and watching someone go through that while also trying to juggle a million things is always going to be very difficult to watch. Yeah. I, I, you know, if I was a biblical scholar, I'm positive that there is someone that this could be an allegory to who, uh, JC helps out, um, through doing some air quotes on that one. Um, there's definitely a a feeling of like different lost souls and like the like different troubled people um but butchie essentially being like a major talent who has a troubled existence and is in the process of being rescued by john i think there uh, someone can write in or something who knows anything more about the bible than three jews but um, I, I would love to, I would love to know who this is like actually a an allegory for or a, a reference to. Yeah, we have a really good idea of the first edition. The second edition, we don't know too yeah, much yeah, about. Yeah. Over the, se- here. the second book, The Prisoner of Azkaban. 
Yeah, that, that one is <laughs> the way director's over our heads. <laughs> Release the Snyder Cut of the Bible. Uh, um, let's push forward a little bit, though, okay. because some uh, a little bit more starts to happen. Um, John meets Vietnam Joe. Um, and we only Boy, get a little, a little bit of Vietnam Joe, but what a, like, we start to learn a little. For li- the record, this is the character's credited name. Yeah, we're not no. just calling this guy Vietnam no, Joe. That's the actual title. But like, for the, what, he might get like three minutes of screen time overall, but we start to, Vietnam Joe does a really great job as a tool of like, understanding sort of the, mis- the mysterious nature of John as a whole. Like, he's like, hey, I need. Magically, John pulls out exactly $50 out (laughs) of his pocket. Then we start to get a better idea of, like, John not really... Like, I don't want to say he doesn't understand the English language, but, like, the way he speaks as a whole is super-duper interesting because he, like, he keeps on repeating some things I know and some things I don't. Mm -hmm. That is, like, that is a continued phrase throughout the entirety of this episode. Um, I was considering for the opening, just repeating one of you uh, for the first five That's minutes of this funny. episode. That's <laughs> but funny. I decided we are a podcast. People would not understand the joke. People would not understand we are a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but like anything you guys got from like meeting Vietnam Joe, uh, seeing a character who is very different than some of the other characters that we've met. Vietnam Joe is a good tool for exploring the world beyond the Yost family that we're in. Uh, This town of Imperial Beach is written as being 10 miles north of the Mexican border Mm -hmm. in Southern California. And so we see some of the general politics at play here and like how this community outside of the surf world interacts and goes about their day so i I do think that he as this episode uh, serves almost as like a plot device more than a character uh because i mean what he literally shepherds our protagonist into town and gets him where he needs to be but also like he just gives you that background on imperial that otherwise might have been a little bit harder to get out there yeah and and imperial beach is a real place i do want to say that and i think the i think that motel is actually real i think that is like in a real motel that they wrote it out that they rented out for the for filming oh we should have recorded the podcast from there i agree with you (laughs) max and i can drive jeff will see you in three days (laughs) yeah hit your hit your ride of the vietnam vet yeah um well as joe or excuse me John is getting a ride from Joe. We get introduced to a little bit more of the dynamic of the Yost family um, via Sean, right? Sean is the surfing prodigy as well, um, which seems to run within the Yost family. Um, But he wants to go to this surfing tournament in Huntington Beach um, against the orders of Mitch, uh, who almost just seems like this, you know, it's Mitch's word or the highway in this uh instance um but the the dynamic between sissy mitch you throw in kai who just randomly is there and is like i don't know if kai is sean's mom or what her relationship is with that family but it's very mysterious and odd yeah um it like the the dynamic between this family is screwed 
Like, let's just let's just call it. I spade, will spade also say instance. the one thing that uh, that basically makes this family so angry. Like the one divisive point is surfing, and they decided <laughs> to stay in Imperial Beach. <clears throat> And run a surf shop. For Mitch to like really hate his family being involved in surfing, he completely surrounded himself with it every single day. I do not understand the... That's the one thing from this pilot that really threw me. Like, they're basically... I guess you can't stay away from it. I don't know. I've never surfed. I'm sure people who like have an absolute obsession with it can't stay away from it. They can't move too far from the beach. Um, yeah, th- this scene with the surf shop and uh, the parallel ongoing scene of uh, Shawnee and Butch together in the motel, you-, you really get a feel for all the different dynamics between the family members here. Mitch seems to feel this guilt over surfing and what it's done to his family. Butchie getting strung out from getting that taste of glory, it seems like. Fame got to him and it led him down a dark path. His resentment towards this character of Link played by Luke Perry and what he's done to his mm-hmm. family, maybe blaming Link for creating this rift here um, versus, you know, Sissy wanting to just see Shawnee succeed. You know, the the sins of the father are mm-hmm. not that of the son, so on and so forth. Wow. The butchy Shawnee scene to me is really tough to watch because you're watching this father son dynamic while Butchie is in the throes of being strung out. Yeah. And there's a Milch quote from a New York times piece on the creation of this show. This is a piece from back in 2006 where Milch talks about addiction in here. And he says that every time a junkie walks into a new environment, he looks around and says, what are the specific items of the indictment? And to me, that's sort of saying that it's like, oh, well, you always feel like people are coming at you, blaming you. There's always yeah. like there's always things that are guilt. being pushed as being your fault, yeah. sense of guilt. And like seeing the anger he has about shoddy surfing because of how he feels about himself and his life. It's just like like you said, how everything revolves around surfing, but like it's more than surfing. Like surfing's the thing, but it's not the thing. It's making yeah. the leap from a hobby to being part of a capitalistic system around, uh, around surfing. I think what ended up happening is, I mean, if you can extrapolate from enigmatic dialogue of what Link could have done to Butchie when he was younger. And Link, I mean, I really don't think Link is that bad of a person. I think Link was being a manager who let themselves be catering to Butchie's inner mm-hmm. like, demons and everything. And I think what ends up happening is Butchie was going to go down this route anyways. It's just that he had more money from being a professional surfer. Yeah, and I'm sure there's enablers that we don't see here. And and these scenes, like these two scenes in the motel or the surf shop, this is the stuff that is really interesting to me here. Mm -hmm. There is a really powerful family drama in this show. It's just there. there's all of the... uh, you know, loopy speak and the supernatural. And there's like all these other things here that you're kind of going like, huh, what's happening? Yeah. There's, there's like a, a really lot of good family story here. Totally. There's a lot of extra stuff, right? Like that just, I, I, I think if this was truly just about the Yost family and then we added in like a few other characters, like maybe three, right? Like have it be 
the Yos are the, I can't do math right now, the main four, and then you have two other characters that are part of the main cast, and then you might have some other storylines that come in here and there, but we don't need to meet all of them in this pilot episode. We can really get a good understanding of everything shitty that's happening with the Yost family um, in the beginning. Um, I do want to push this forward a little bit. Yeah. We don't have yeah, we're, we're running longer than a Bible book yeah. right now. <laughs> the Snyder um, Cut version. But, like, I want to talk quickly about, you know, after the Yost disagreement in the surf shop, we are told Sissy just disobeys Mitch. And I use disobey very lightly because she makes a decision for herself and says, Sean, you're going to this surfing tournament. Go speak with Bill. Uh, Bill's going to drive you there. Um, this is the first time we've ever done this. And Max, I know you made fun of me for ever saying that. But first time we've had an actor in two consecutive episodes yeah. of TV shows because we have Ed O'Neill as Bill. Um, I do want to say Bill's character is so intriguing to me. We do get the second miracle, but I've never seen Ed O'Neill play like this quiet, like taken aback character. Yeah, he was a dork. And it was it was so interesting to me. It like the choices he made, I was just like, okay, like what happened? Because they didn't just get Ed O'Neill to be this guy. They got Ed O'Neill because this is a layered human being who might, we might see outbursts, but like something happened that made him into the man. He this is, is the Ed O'Neill Emmy role. Like this, this is the part that Ed O'Neill I keep took saying because it's, it's break. <laughs> but no, no, it, it's that thing where an actor takes a part. That's such a break from type that yeah. it, it gets them praise and awards. And it launches them into a new part of their career. And, Little did he know that two years later he was going to get that part for, for being it, like a curmudgeonly older dad figure again. For being himself. <laughs> yeah, just, but, Ed O'Neill played Ed O'Neill. No, two, two years <laughs> later he plays senior version of Al Bundy yeah. and he gets all this praise heaped on him. But like, it's just fascinating to see the turn that Ed O'Neill is attempting to take mm -hmm. with this part. I, I really liked it. I, I, you know, this is something that subverts my own expectations of what I think would, uh, of who I think would be drawn to a show like this. I was just listening to an interview of Mark Maron uh, literally yesterday about one of the new movies that he's in where he plays like a very quiet, reserved, like Texan guy. He's like, this is something I had to have several calls with the director asking, do, is this, do you really want me for this? Is this really like, yeah. you know, cause uh the actor or the director or the casting team sees something a little bit deeper in them. And I, I don't know. It's so different from anything Ed O'Neill has done prior. The or, or other since. thing here and then we'll move on is that this character, he's clearly dealing with trauma and PTSD. He talks mm -hmm. about having a pain diagnosis from the VA. Uh, we find out not too long after that he was involved with the police department here. And it's interesting to see that Milch's background from Hill Street Blues to NYPD Blues to his other cop dramas, that he would then write someone who was involved in that world and seeing almost like the after effects yeah. of it. Yeah, the, who, the, this is a guy who like spent 15 years writing the police as these like action heroes. And now we're seeing another side to that from Milch. So it's curious to see what got him from NYPD Blue to bill in john from cincinnati yeah we do have um our second miracle i do want to just mention it really quickly there is a bird zippy 
um, Bill owns the bird, and then we find out that Zippy dies, and then Zippy, after being touched by a Yoast, Sean, mm -hmm. arises from the dead. Um, which is super interesting. You can tell Bill is entirely spooked by the idea of it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's something there that has to be kept in mind. First miracle by Mitch, second miracle by Sean. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what comes next. Uh, John meet John Monad meets Butchie. Um, and this is such an interesting, we get a little bit more of a piece of, who John is as a human being, right? Another, I don't want to call it a miracle, but John goes into his pockets and produces $2,300 yeah. that Mitch has been looking for, or Butchie has been looking for. And then they decide, what made Butchie decide that John was going to be a surfing prodigy? Because I missed that interaction as a whole, but Butchie almost seemed dead on, like, oh, John is my big... Like, my big break. This is what's going to get me back in the good graces of the surfing world as a whole. Uh, I that just he just keeps that? repeating everything that Butchie says about surfing and then producing an MX Platinum card. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that, that really is it. And, I, and also, like, he mistakenly thinks that he's from the agency that's trying to get him his, like, uh, accident, like, uh, lawsuit insurance money or something like that. I can't remember... Uh, exactly what it was but it was you know he was someone that was calling he was calling some guy named freddie over and over and over in this in these scenes coming from the motel and mistakes john as someone who like as part of the people that owe him money and what essentially yeah. that does too is like john becomes someone who is alleviating stress from butchie he's alleviating like yeah. anger from him he uh like essentially removed the debts of someone uh butchie was furious with and you, you know i don't think you hear from the pre the people that actually owed him money again like you know john is going to be the personal not necessarily savior but he's definitely going to be someone who is helping this family along in so many different ways and i think butchie is the person that has the most pain root like caught like through the different branches of the family and the fact that he's there with him i think is is you know it's indicative of like how he's going to help that family as a whole like coming from the center of the most pain there's an interesting moment in here though where where john is repeating all of like butchie's enthusiastic moments mm -hmm. and then uh he he drops to his knees in front of Butchie's basically in like a laid out prayer mm -hmm. and Butchie gets really freaked out. And I'm curious as to like what you guys think this moment is. Yeah, it, it is so intriguing, right? Because the entire character of John is meant to be this mysterious figure, right? Like this unexplainable entity that is able to produce things when they are needed to be produced able to um act in ways that the moment necessitates um but it was just one of those i mean wouldn't y'all be freaked out if someone just started praying in front of you uh and acting like you were this greater entity as a whole well yeah i think there's also i have to imagine someone who is like a generational talent in something as well has a lot of bizarre interactions with people who yeah. you know 
and I I think he was like maybe he had a savior complex at a certain particular point of being someone who's so good at one particular thing that everyone else kind of capitulates toward them or it like has mm-hmm. to be like you know I'm positive that people who really really love basketball would freak the hell out if they saw LeBron James in person or something like that yeah uh, I I don't know if they would do something so crazy as to like you know get on their knees and uh, and and you know essentially like be submissive to that person but i i really think uh i i i think maybe i mean i just love that there's so many open-ended things in this pilot this is why i'm like watch all 10 watch all 10 it, you gotta it's watch all 10. because but butchie has he has a poster of himself from his glory mm-hmm. days in his drug den motel room mm-hmm. he has a butchie the beast poster like a poster that's probably in the bedrooms of how many kids throughout yeah. Southern California in his heyday. So I, I do think, yeah, maybe there was some sort of complex he had about himself, and now he's, like, dealing with that inner demon as well. I, I don't know. It's, it's just a very interesting moment there, how, like, the shift happens really quick. It's also such an interesting juxtaposition, because you have the way that John behaves around Butchie, but then very soon after, you see how some of the other people in his life, like Kai, treat Butchie. Mm-hmm. As this Mm -hmm. nuisance as a whole and like this human being that is just a pest in general. You see how the some of the other characters like the folks that are working at the motel, they help Butchie, but they almost keep their distance away from him, like trying to be these uh, guides while also not interfering as much as possible. Um, It's a for John to be really that first character to interact and give him that essence of what it once was um, probably is very shocking and something that he's not used to anymore. Mm-hmm. He's the only character in the show that Butchie hasn't let down in the past, like before yeah. the show started. Oh, very, very interesting take. Um, so I want to go to, there's like 10 minutes of the show where a lot of stuff happens, Yeah, but I thought it was probably the most interesting 10 minutes of the show. Um, we have Sissy going to Target, or excuse Costco. me, Costco, uh, but they call it Janoco, uh, for some <laughs> reason, because Costco definitely did not want to no. have any participation in this. They did not make uh, Costco look like a fun place to be. We have, Butch- it's not. <laughs> we have Butchie and Mitch, uh, get in an argument over the phone and then get in a physical altercation within five minutes of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Bill and Sean trying to drive to Huntington. And then mysteriously get a flat tire. And then we also meet Mr. Cunningham, um, who attempts within all this period of time to get so emotionally distressed that he attempts to kill himself uh, in all of this. And let's give a little, let's give like a two second background on this. Uh, uh, Mr. Cunningham is a lottery winner from Imperial Beach. And it is revealed that he was struck in the head by Butchie as like, uh, as a 12 year old, um, with a broom, yeah. yeah, with a broom where the, you know, the soft part of the broom, like the actual bristle part fell out, fell off. So basically he got smacked in the head with like a broom handle, uh, by Butchie and like essentially can like the route, the result of that is he has epilepsy and now has like a grudge against him. And that, and he is the new purchaser 
of the Imperial Beach Motel. Yeah. Which it's also very briefly, like a blink and you miss it reveal, mm-hmm. his history to the motel itself, mm-hmm. um, which is that uh, Barry Cunningham reveals that as a child, he was sexually assaulted mm-hmm. in one of yeah. those motel rooms. So he has basically won the lottery and come back to Imperial Beach looking for, I guess for lack of a better word, a sense of revenge against those in the town who wronged him in his youth. Yeah, to get, he's, I think he mentions he's going to just level the motel. He's going to he's gonna raise the motel. Yeah. He's going to just erase it from the face which, of the which, earth. I gotta be honest, I for uh, anyone with that type of trauma, I would totally get what a, yeah. what a great thing to do. It, it also, it, it's very reminiscent of like, you know the the end of um fight club or something like that it's just like destroy the thing that hurt you and i and i think that's uh i there's there is kind of a beauty to it and also i i you can't really tell from this scene if he knew that butchie was already there but he wanted to destroy the motel no matter what so he had two two things two um past things to settle by destroying that motel and then an interesting character revelation here. Uh, Barry Cunningham comes into this scene with a gun on his mm-hmm. hip, basically saying that he was told that when you win the lottery, you need to be armed because people will come after you and try to yeah. rob you. So there's also like a real paranoia here, but we are getting a gun reveal in a very heated situation yeah. that is then shockingly turned on himself mm-hmm. and, uh, Mayor Dickstein has to wrangle out of his hands really quickly to prevent uh, Barry from killing himself in the parking lot of the motel. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a, you, it's a wild scene. You have everyone showing ahead. up in the motel at that exact moment too. The entire Eos family is there except for Sissy. Like, uh, uh, Bill and Sean somehow wind up inside the motel. Like They have to just pull off the road because of the flat everyone's tire. Everyone's drawn to that particular moment, which I thought was very fascinating. It was an interesting piece of the of the, the story flow. Yeah, it, it definitely was this, like all of the stuff that happened, like we could dive into the politics of the sissy at Janoco <laughs> situation and the jokes that happened there and that entire scene. We could dive into seeing bill and like dealing with his trauma being a police uh part of the police and now dealing with the real life and almost being scared of being outside of his own home Mm -hmm. but this scene ends with a man nearly tries to kill himself and doesn't and we have to go to the police station to get sissy out of uh custody as a whole should just say really quick, we've touched upon this. Sissy goes to not Costco to buy a camera for Mitch because he wants to get photographic proof of his feet off of the floor. We also skipped over this, um, but Mitch believes that he might have yes. a brain tumor, yeah. which is why he's hallucinating himself floating. He basically says brain cancer as a punchline in a scene at one point. Very, very dark joke. Uh, but while there... Sissy ends up being escorted out by the police after knocking over a display of toilet paper, getting into a disagreement with a store employee. Because uh, apparently that is an arrestable offense. Yes, yes. you know, ca- causing causing drama down at the Costco is going to get you thrown in jail for a day or two. Oh my God. Um, I 
did really find the police station to be interesting because we found Bill almost snapped back into form, mm -hmm. right? Uh, being this head figure at the police station. He's really disappointed how things look. He's almost like coming out of that retirement phase as a whole. Um, Butch and Mitch uh, sort of come to an agreement of like, hey, we have to be okay with each other and yeah. like mitch i know you don't trust john but i do and we also find um mitch gets confirmation that he doesn't have brain cancer because he's seen floating yeah. by butch I, I think i think that that reveal of mitch levitating in front of butchie was like number one like a really important reconciliation moment from how much tension and anger there is throughout the entire episode up until this point between them and i think it was basically both of them letting go of hey we need to stop fighting over things that happened in the past and focus our attention on raising sean to be like an actual decent man because sean the only person who's like really helping sean is his grandmother sissy who's now in jail and also john who keeps doing dance moves at him um, which yeah. is uh it's like and a very like weird connecting. connection moment yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it, it was weird. It was he's like just a pure doing soul. he's just doing the Michael Jackson like yeah, yeah. hand pop out move yeah. over and over and over, which again I have seen a lot of people just do in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is not a weird. This is not a this is not a monad. Everyone does that in SoCal. <laughs> oh oh, Max, did you guys did you think the guy in the in front of uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater? Do you think that's really Michael Jackson? Yeah, he's trying to connect with people. What what do you say? Oh, buddy. <laughs> Oh, no. He died soon after John from Cincinnati came out. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Michael Jackson. You would have loved John from Cincinnati. <laughs> um, so let's let's finish up this episode and talk about the end of this episode yes. because a couple of things happen. Um, I want to talk about what we see happen with Mr. Cunningham after all of this stuff. We see him in this beautiful beachside mansion, sitting next to a teddy bear, drinking wine. Um, he's being looked he's over drinking wine and, not the teddy bear by the way yeah the the teddy bear <laughs> I they uh, but the teddy bear the teddy bear then proceeds to uh go surfing uh according to mr cunningham and this was like another instance of where you see like hey something's really up with this guy like he's definitely not all there and we not only like i almost find him slightly terrifying oh yeah because he isn't all there he has all of these resources and he will involve himself and he will put harm to himself in order to hurt other people as well. Um, but then we get this really fun final scene of John, Mitch, Butch, and Sean all go surfing. Um, and it's almost, I don't want to say it's like this everything's going to be okay moment. Mm -hmm. um, but it feels like an everything's going to be okay. It we does. get one of my favorite lines of... Butch saying somebody call an ambulance because Johnny Monad put that wave in the ICU. Yeah, um, the dialogue which... <laughs> there wasn't amazing. You can see why they wanted everything to be more cryptic and, and riddles because uh, the, the true dialogue is a little weird. Yeah, and then, you know, through all this, um, Deborah sees that Sean is not at Huntington while Link is there mm -hmm. to go and hopefully sign Sean. Yeah. Um, and we get to see that 
John is amazing at surfing. He just picks it up. He picked it up. After, yeah, without, to our knowledge, no previous experience surfing. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of, that's how the episode ends. Do you guys have any more comments on that final scene? Uh, I like that we end with family here. I like that we see maybe Mitchling go of some of his surfing resentment and being able to, like, bond over it with family. Yeah. Um, I like that he finally gets to watch his grandson and how good he is in person after really only seeing his, like, surf, uh, like, mixtape that he's using to try and get sponsorships. But I also think it's important that we see that Butchie still has mm -hmm. it. I, I think it's really important that Mitch gets to watch two generations of his family, A, bond over a wave and seeing, like, a father-son moment between Butchie and Shawnee, and that both of them still have this gift in them, and hopefully that'll bring... Uh, Mitch back into the fold as well and I'm, I'm glad that we do end on a hopeful note in what is otherwise a fairly bleak pilot yeah, yeah. he and and I think uh, I mean the first thing that John says is Mitch Yost needs to get back in the game and I think where you leave, where you leave the family is Mitch deciding to get back in the game um, yeah. but you also get and and I'm, I put this in the things we love category but um, okay so you also get a pretty important thing here of the reveal that John can hear people talk to themselves very quietly from a long distance away. Um, Bill is like, I got my eye on you, John. Like, we're going to figure out yeah. what is wrong with you or you're going to figure out what your motives are or whatever. And then you can hear John while actively like surfing on a wave, like when he's supposed to be focusing, looking Bill, looking at Bill right in the eyes from the water from a very long distance away. It was like, I got my eyes on you, Bill. And, yeah. uh, and you know, that's another big part of it. Um, but, I mean, okay. I, I'm going to jump right into the things we love because I, I I need to talk about this particular scene because the stranglehold that this particular line had on my family for a really long time was, uh, okay, so uh, Butchie at one point says, uh, how does that sound, John? When he's encouraging, when he's encouraging John to fake a leg cramp or something like that, so he can get out of surfing, uh, John turns around and says, "It sounds butchy. It's like it's the, it's the <laughs> dumbest line. It's so stupid." But I, I think what really kept me in this show, because I don't, I don't have a lot of like interest normally in like extreme, weird, enigmatic fiction or um, Bible allegories or anything like that. I think it's the weird moments of comedy in the show that really kept me in it. And they really write a lot based on from how bizarre John's parrot talk is. And, and I really, I, I really like that. And I think that's what really like cinched this up for me as a show. I wanted to keep watching that. It sounds butchy joke. Oh, it's so good. Uh, there's two other lines of dialogue that I really enjoyed as long as Rich is highlighting that one. I really like when uh, Vietnam Joe pulls up to the motel and says to Luis Guzman uh, and, uh, oh my God, uh, Willie Garson, I could eat a bowl of soup off of either of your heads. Yeah, what does that uh, mean? I that was I a wild joke. That's a wild thing to say to people you don't know. Also, uh, just shout out to, to Sissy for when uh, her husband is talking about thinking he has brain cancer and not knowing why he thinks that just that he does. And she asks him, what about the healing power of sex? And then they <laughs> yeah, I, have sex. <laughs> I, I do have grandparents do be fucking. So, you know, that it was nice to see that. <laughs> also, it's nice to see her. Uh, 
I, I really know her from like risky business and this. So uh, shout out to her there. Um, also, just shout out to Austin Nichols for doing a really nice physical acting with what is a very difficult role to do. It, it reminds me of like a more avant-garde version of like Tom Hanks in Big, where it's just this kind of like boyish wonder at the world around him in a grown man's body. Uh, being able to mimic both the vocals and the mannerisms and physicality of a lot of different cast members. Uh, it, it is an interesting performance. I, I will give him credit on that. There are a lot of other ways that this performance could be done. I'll give you that. And I think that the choices that were made by Austin Nichols were probably the right ones, given the script that he was handed. Um, we talked about things we loved do we want to talk about some wait-a-minute moments? Because I feel like there are probably a few. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, Ed O'Neill with, uh, I mean, just the, the racism and the homophobia stuff. like Two shows in a row. Yeah, two weeks in a row. <laughs> Guys, should we just do Married with Children next week? So we yeah, three let's... weeks in a row of Ed O'Neill's racism and homophobia. Let's do the Ed O'Neill trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, any any other wait-a-minute moments for you, you both? It's just... This whole thing's just a lot. And I know that's not a specific at all, but there's just so many details layered upon each other. By the time we get to Cunningham being introduced at the motel, there's already so many plot lines and so many backstories trying to follow. Mm -hmm. uh, this show just throws so much broad stroke information at you that by the time you get to that nice surfing moment as a family at the end, it almost feels like a relief, not in that it's over, but like there's finally just one storyline here that feels like it's reaching a natural conclusion. Yeah, to add to that, Max, watching this at the end of this episode, I felt exhausted. I felt like physically and mentally exhausted watching this television show. Like, yeah, the, the idea of like, obviously... 2007 this was before like binging tv shows one after the other and that idea if someone was like let's binge john from cincinnati i'd be like how do you have the energy for this like it's way too much if you took out everything david Belcher did and you just told me that a yale literature professor wrote a show about jesus and surfing i'd be like yeah this is this yeah like this is the show <laughs> I, I really I, I don't know I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going at the sales pitches for people to watch all ten episodes but like you you do get like it gets deeper it gets crazier like it is just like if you like shows like Lost or Twin Peaks or something like that where you're just like the whole point of the show is less about the entertainment factor and more about trying to figure out what the hell's going on have it developing your own theories around it like the only you know, because this show had such a short run, it was so unpopular. There's only like a handful of like actual fan pages online. And um, most of them are just fan theories about what they think happened. And that includes after the show had already finished. So like, yeah. it, you know, the only 10 episodes, it does not like answer every question, but neither did lost. So I get it. Like, you know, yep. very fair. Yeah. So, if there aren't any more wait-a-minute moments, mm -hmm. we do have an in-flight question. And Woo! my guess is whoever submitted this did not actually watch the pilot and read a little <laughs> bit of a cursory item about what it was about. And they asked, 
if Jesus was in fact from the United States, what city would he be from? <laughs> well, none of us is Mormon, so we know precisely uh, where they think Jesus is from. Um, I'm thinking Tampa, Florida. Uh, you got to have humble beginnings for for Jesus, otherwise, it's not an important story. You guys can can, can you discuss. <laughs> I have my answer. Uh, Jesus is from the Catskills in New York State. Wow. Uh, wow. Um, he's so eh, <laughs> he's got a few jokes. He's got a few yeah, one-liners. He, he, he worked the borscht belt for a long time and realized it wasn't for him, and then turned to uh, healing and saving humanity. Oh, I'm also going to add one more uh, descriptor for why I think he's from Tampa, Florida. It's that he hung out with a lot of sex workers. That's a good point. It is the highest amount of strip clubs per capita in the United States. Jesus okay, so I, I'm going to give a little backstory to my answer. Um, I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio yeah. for a decent amount of time. Um, and I don't think Cincinnati is a great representative of where Jesus would be from. Uh, not that I think there's too much happening in Cincinnati, but I also don't think there's little enough happening in Cincinnati that it would make sense. But for those who are familiar with the Ohio region, uh, because I know a few of our listeners are, there is a outlet mall area called the Cincinnati Premium Outlets in Monroe, Ohio. <laughs> yes, this continues to track with Cincinnati having things named Cincinnati, but not being in Cincinnati. Oh boy. But... A half a mile away from the Cincinnati Premium Outlets, there is a 30-foot high statue made of stone of Jesus Christ. Um, it is wow. literally amazing. Wow. I have a song that I sing every single time that I see Stone Jesus. Big Stone uh, Jesus. Very close. <laughs> it's Stone Jesus. He is made of stone. And... <laughs> Um, so I would stone, like stone temple Pontius Pilate. Uh... <laughs> so I will say, I think Jesus would be from Monroe, Ohio. Uh, and I think he would have thrived in Monroe, Ohio. Well, thank you. He would love for... the Bass Pro Shop Pyramid. Oh, maybe from... absolutely. <laughs> maybe it's from Knoxville. Would it be a Cabela's or would it be a Bass Pro Shop? We'll never know. Um, and I said, Jesus from Memphis. <laughs> oh, yeah, Memphis. Memphis is from Memphis. <laughs> it's the third largest pyramid in the world. Uh, well, thank you so much for that in-flight question. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how to submit those later at the end of this episode. But I do want to talk a little bit about the show legacy. Um, so Rich has mentioned it. There are only... 10 episodes of John from Cincinnati that were ever made. Uh, the show was canceled right after the 10th episode premiered. Uh, you can also, if you do not find it on HBO Max, you might be one of the lucky few who has the three-disc DVD set that was made available. Um, one other thing that I want to talk about. So we talked a little bit about how this show premiered right after The Sopranos. There were 11.9 million folks who watched the season finale or series finale of The Sopranos. There were 3.4 who ended up staying for John from Cincinnati. What I will give kudos to is how many of those people who watched the premiere of John from Cincinnati stayed on to watch all of the rest of the show. 
it went from 3.4 million to 3 million, which is a pretty like decent People percentage. came back. So like, Rich, you are not alone. People who watched it were like, give me more. I That's wanna... a really good retention over the Yeah, season. that is a wild retention. Everybody wants um, more John, baby. But surprisingly, no nominations for any awards for I'm this stunned. show. I'm stunned and yeah. angry. <laughs> I, I, want, <laughs> I want the Academy to come talk to me because that's bullshit. But but Rich has a lot of questions that still remain. That is the legacy. I think everyone who probably watched this show has a lot of questions still about this show. And if we're going to talk even showrunner legacy, David Milch then follows this up at HBO with a show called Lock starring Dustin Hoffman, which is most known for being shut down because they killed so many horses. Yeah. What? Oh, yeah, that premiered in, it, like, it, 2011 2010 or something? Yeah. or 11. It was David Milch's horse racing show. He's, like, a big horse racing guy. Like, he owns Thoroughbreds and uh-huh. stuff. But they had so many horses that died doing was the racing Was it Al Pacino scenes. in that show? Was it? No, it was Dustin Hoffman, it's I It's Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was in that show. This isn't even Milch's worst legacy on HBO. Like, we've gone from <laughs> Deadwood to John from Cincinnati to, dead to horses. You got shut down because so many horses died. <laughs> Oh my god. It's time for Rich's Game of the Week. Bah, 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 bah. Uh, and we're also going to do, on top of that, and thank you for uh, for sticking with us on the show, um, because uh, I, I, I so desperately want other people to watch this entire series. Um, I am going to do a personal giveaway uh, for, uh, for the pod. Um, if you are listening, and we are going to post this on social media too, um, if you rate and review our podcast and send us a screenshot of it, uh, you will be in the running to, to have a, to win a series DVD of John from Cincinnati, uh, yes! brand, yes! brand new and sealed. And I will send it to you. Um, I want... <laughs> uh, we're setting a terrible precedent if we're going to send DVD sets to people. I don't know. I don't know what machines still play DVDs, but I'm so excited to send this to uh, to our lucky winner. Um, but for the three of us right now, I'm playing a little game called Who's That Familiar Face? And obviously we talked a little bit about Ed O'Neill being uh, in last week's episode on uh, Modern Family. I want you guys to tell me who of the Yoast family, Sissy, Sean, Mitch, and Butchie, um, just so you know, uh, to put those names to uh, to those characters, Rebecca Mornay, De Mornay plays Sissy, Grayson Fletcher plays Sean, Bruce Greenwood plays Mitch, and Brian Van Holt plays Butchie. Which of these four actors have appeared in one of our previously done pilots shows? Uh, and, uh, you know, there's about 200 plus credits among the four of them, but I would love to, uh, at, you know, there's only four guesses, so I would love to hear what or who you think had been on a show we had previously covered. And I'm assuming it's not the pilot of what it is we not previously the pilot. covered. You mean just physically? They were in the show. There was like surprisingly only one of them has a credit from the uh, from the past shows that we've done. Ooh. Um. Oh God, this is gonna drive me insane. Um. I'll go first, and I'll say that it was 
Mitch Yost by uh, played by Bruce Greenwood. And do you have a? Uh, this isn't part of the game, but do you have a guess of what show he was on? Oh, that's a dirty, dirty <laughs> question. That you we've only asked. done seventeen shows before this. You know what? But they all were so memorable. Uh, <laughs> I'd love if it was Bruce Greenwood was actually on Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bruce Bruce Greenwood played uh, played Woodstock in the in the Charlie Brown. Movie. I actually, now that I think about it, I really want uh, Brian Van Holt to be on. Jeez, uh, what was the one that we did with the Lions? Uh, the <laughs> oh my God, Father of the Pride. Yeah, I want him to be on Father of the Pride so badly. <laughs> Max, what's your Max, guess? Max, what about you? Okay, I I think I I think it is Brian Van Holt. Okay, and what show do you think? Uh so so Van Holt like before this show did like a ton of action movies. He was in like SWAT and Black Hawk Down and stuff like that. I think that Brian Van Holt is one of the characters in one of the movies that Vinny Chase made on Entourage. Like, I Holy think he's like a shit. character. Max, you fucking got it. That is unbelievable. Oh my god, that is unbelievable. I, I don't How remember. You put that I don't together? remember. I guess, like, when I was researching, I knew that he was like doing a lot of like action movies in like oh three oh four oh five. Like, he had like supporting roles in a lot of stuff, and I was just like, what else could make sense at this time? That was so what, good. What, I, well, I mean, I would have, I would have bet, I would have bet money before I came up with, uh, with the game that Bruce Greenwood was in a show that we had done. I don't. He just seems like a because he has so many credits. Yeah, he seems like he a literally dad does that, everything. Yeah, that we, he seems like a dad that would show up on the OC at some point. But also, like, I, I, I'm so impressed that you got that. Not only the, not only the character. I'm sorry, the 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 person, but the what the show, played. the show. And the, the the character that he got uh, on Entourage is stunning to me. Um, Hold on, what's the movie he did though? What which one is he in? Um, uh, I, who, maybe oh. he's in Medellin or something. I don't know. I was gonna say if we oh. ever do Saint Elsewhere, I'm gonna nail Bruce Greenwood. <laughs> no, he's he's <laughs> one of Vinny Chase's co-stars in Smoke Jumpers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, okay. Um, I also, I speaking of Brian Van Holt, I really want to do Cougar Town at some point during the run. That's of this. a let's I please do Cougar love, Town. I love Cougar Town. I you, me, so and Emil from Community. Be all love sure Cougar to Town. like and subscribe so Rich can send you a copy of Cougar Town in the future. It's going to be a lot more discs in that one. <laughs> more, more than uh, more than one. Rich is going to go broke sending DVD sets to people. <laughs> if anybody wants to sponsor this pod so we can support our DVD gifting habits. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, well, you know, as we come to the end of this episode, um, I have my regular two questions for you both. Um, would you continue watching this show? And... Do you think it could be made today? Well, I have a surprising answer to would you continue watching this show? Watch the rest of the fucking show. It is so good. Watch it. Watch it. Please, for the love of God, someone else watch John from Cincinnati so I can talk about this Rich part. needs someone to talk with. It can't just be my brother and my dad again. Everyone needs to watch the show. Max, what about you? So I actually think this can be made today, 100%. I, I think a cryptic uh mystery surfing all that stuff like i think that everything in this show could be made today i think about stuff that netflix did like maniac with carrie fukunaga that show with emma stone and jonah hill mm -hmm. which 
also only lasted one season. Um, I think about Lost. I think about Twin Peaks having a revival. Absolutely, this show could be made today. Um, I If I say <laughs> yes, I'm going to keep watching it. It's only to appear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coming over because, to your house. <laughs> He's going to watch it with you. Listen... Folks, Rich knows where I live, and if I don't, if I don't watch the remaining nine episodes, he's gonna just keep showing up at my building until I, I also. Do. He's gonna be um, gifting you DVD sets of John from Cincinnati. I also own one of those eye-opening things from uh, from A Clockwork Orange, so I will make Max watch all this. If I wasn't under the threat of Rich, I would not continue <laughs> watching this. Though, so um, it's just an example of a pilot where there's. There's too much going on for me to really get absorbed into wanting to follow its storyline. Uh, it does that thing where it a lot gets said, but nothing gets said. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just it's just not for me. I'm really sorry, Rich. <laughs> That's okay. So the threat of violence Rich, will continue. Rich, going into this recording. Uh-huh. I was extremely upset with you. Right. Um, <laughs> to, to say, I I am mostly it's yeah. Okay. So, but let me let me explain my thought process. Um, do I think this show could be made today? Not on HBO, mm. because as we've seen, shows with confusing plot devices such as Westworld are now being taken off the platform entirely. I mean, they gave Westworld way too long, in my opinion. But, Anyways. like, that's my thing, is I think if this show was edited differently and some a couple of different choices were made, I think the show could actually thrive in today's, you know, in a world that we live in right now. Like, I don't want to teenify the show and make it, like, Outer Banks or something like that, which is super popular. Mm-hmm. But, like, we do need to sort of broaden the audience a little bit more uh, because it almost feels like very niche, and I don't see a niche show like this thriving. Um, would I continue watching this show? Rich also knows where I live, <laughs> uh, but he's not nearly as close. So no, I, I will say it, this, R- Rich, I'll make <laughs> you a promise. If you come and visit me, I will watch another episode of this show, and you can try to sell me on... Uh, if I should continue watching the other eight episodes after Look, that, but you've already watched ten percent of it. <laughs> oh my god! Until uh, that moment in time, I might choose to watch another uh, David Mitch show and watch uh, Deadwood because I think that's a fantastic show. Just, just, just lightning quick in here, because you mentioned the teenifying thing, and we mentioned social media, the Sopranos finale earlier this episode. I do wonder if a show like this that has so much cryptic speak and loose threads would benefit from the social era. I think about another HBO show that just wrapped its second season, The White Lotus, and how it feels like in season two of that show, it became a social media phenomenon. Mm -hmm. There are so many threads and rabbit holes you can go down people are finding minute details even in the weeks since the finale aired that they're still bringing to light like we're still talking about theories there um i do wonder if a show like john from cincinnati would have benefited from a culture of web 
blogging sites like, like AV Club and later, The Ringer and Uprocks that are so pop culture centric. I, I, I think if, if, if it would, yeah. If this show came out while we were in school, like 2010 through 2013, if where we Facebook, just missed, just missed. Yeah. If it came out a few years later, I think that this show might have a second season. And I'm going to say that very honestly. So, Rich, what could have been? Uh, but as the plane has landed, uh, the seatbelt signs are off. Where can we find you two gentlemen? You can find me watching the rest of John from Cincinnati in, uh, in Los Angeles, California. Stop by the house and watch the rest with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Damn That's Rich. You can find Max and my comedy at Dadwagon Comedy on TikTok. Uh, you could find me enjoying a nice bowl of Cincinnati chili, uh, chili from Cincinnati. Uh, you can also find me on all things social media at Maxwell Singh. And you can find me either in OTR Cincinnati, maybe the banks, uh, not enjoying a bowl of Cincinnati style chili because it's garbage. Shout out to MK, uh, but <laughs> maybe enjoying some Grater's ice cream. Uh, but you can also find me on run on Instagram and Twitter at Run Jeff Run. You can find the TV Pilots License on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at TV Pilots License. If you have a question about the show or for our next episode, shoot us an email or give us a call at 213-290-1713. If you rate and um, subscribe to the podcast and send a snapshot to Rich. You might be the proud new owner of a DVD set of John from Cincinnati. Make sure to watch out for our Instagram for previews of some of our upcoming episodes. And with that plane landed, the seatbelt sign off, we look forward to flying the bright skies of the TV world with you again soon. And until then, surf's up. California, yeah. here we come! <laughs> <laughs> recording stop before the note ended. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>